All right, good evening, everyone. If you got your Bible and you want to follow along tonight, we are going to be in one verse. Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Romans chapter 11, verse 22, just one verse. And the title of our lesson is The Severity of God. The Severity of God. Let's read our verse. It says, Note then... The kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, we covered this verse last week in in pretty much detail, but tonight we're going to do something different. Uh, Normally, I get up here and I teach through the verses and I tell you what they mean. Tonight, I'm not going to do that. Tonight, we are actually going to do what the scripture tells us to do. And we are going to talk about hell. And the reason I'm going to talk about hell is because verse 22 says this. Note then, and the Greek word means stop. Take a look at this. Consider this. Perceive this. Think about this. And he gives us two things to think about or two things that he wants us to consider. One is the kindness of God, and the other is the severity of God. Now, listen, we talk about the kindness of God all the time, don't we? We went through all of Romans chapter 8, and we talked about the goodness of God and the love of God. We got to Romans chapter 9, and we talked about the mercy of God. So we've been talking about the kindness of God, or considering the kindness of God now, for several weeks. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to stop and look at the other side which is the severity. Some translations translate that the hardness of God. Okay, And that is, that is uh, epitomized, the hardness of God, the wrath of God, the fury of God, the justice of God, of course, with hell. And that's why we're going to look at this tonight. Now, I'm going to break this down into six parts. Uh, and we're going to look at different aspects of the doctrine of hell. And we're going to talk about it. And, uh, and I'm going to try my best to explain a few things to you. And the first one is, and I want to make sure we understand this one. I've, I've entitled this first part, Let's Just Focus on Love. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. In 1741, Jonathan Edwards uh, in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts, preached a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You don't hear them kind of titles much anymore, do you? Not very many people teach and preach on the wrath of God, the fury of God, the the justice of God, or even the subjects like hell. You just see those taught and preached on less and less and less. And the reason for that is because many churches and many preachers consider it to be unloving. Now, let me just tell you, that is a lie. That is an absolute lie. In fact, it's actually the opposite. If you don't tell people about the wrath of God, if you don't tell people about the reality of of hell, that's the unloving thing. The loving thing to do is tell them the whole truth. It's like a parent um, telling their kid about a a hot oven, right? And they bring a child into this hot oven and they say, see, this hot oven is good. It it makes lasagna and chocolate, uh, chocolate cakes and pancakes and and fried egg sandwiches, and it just goes on, you know, all about the good, and then you just walk away, and you never tell that child about the dangers of a hot oven, how it can hurt them, how it can burn them. Is that loving? 
Of course it's not, right? It's, it's a skewed view of, of love. We have to tell both sides. That's what's in the Bible. That's the truth. And that's the loving thing to do is to tell both sides. In fact, let me ask you this question. If you saw a truck coming at somebody on a road, how much would you have to hate that person not to tell them? Think about it that way. People say it's, it's unloving to warn them about hell. Really? I say it's the opposite. The loving thing to do is to let them know what's, what's in their future if they don't repent and turn. And in fact, if you don't warn them, if you don't teach them, if you don't preach it, how much do you have to hate somebody to not warn them about their future? That's the first part. So it is the loving thing to do. It's the right thing to do to give both sides. And this is exactly what Paul says. Consider the kindness and the severity of God. Here's the second thing. When it comes to hell, do not let your heart be your guide. Do not let your heart be your guide. I don't know, one of the things that I do is I try to keep up with what's going on in the world of Christianity. I'm always reading articles and, and I follow different people and because I, I want to know what's going on. And I don't know whether you're aware of it. You, you very well may not be, but there are some very well-known men uh, in the uh, respected Christian men in the evangelical world that have rejected and abandoned the historical biblical understanding of hell. Now, what do I mean by the historical biblical understanding of hell? Well, let me read a scripture. By the way, this is Matthew 25. These are the words of Jesus himself. He said this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he's going to sit on his glorious throne. And before him is going to be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from the other, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, that right there is the historical, biblical understanding of hell, eternal punishment. And, and by the way, both of those words are important. Eternal means just what it says. It's unending. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's a punishment. It, there's something. Uh, you're not staying at the Waldorf Astoria forever. You're, you're in some state of torment. That is the biblical definition of hell. Now, the question might be, that seems pretty clear to me, right? I mean, I don't know about y'all, but it seems pretty clear. And I'll show you some more scriptures here in a minute. Why would someone uh, reject that? Why would somebody go to the Bible and say, no, I can't believe that? Well, they do it because of the, the same reason that they reject other biblical truths. They think about something in their mind and they just don't feel right about it. They may say, you know, I think about hell and I think about somebody suffering forever and that just don't seem right to me. And so they come to this book right here and they twist it. They change it or they just reject it and say, well, he didn't really mean that. 
But, but their driver, their motive is their own heart. It's their own emotions. It's their own thinking. Let me give you uh, an example. So again, it's coming from how they feel about it. I'll give you two examples. This is a guy by the name of Clark Pinnock. He died in 2010. He, was a, he had a PhD. He was a doctor or had a doctorate in New Testament studies. So he's a professor at a very renowned seminary. And um, he, later in his life, he rejected the doctrine of hell. Now, this is what he said. This is, this is, by the way, his quote. He says, I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion, not, first of all, on scriptural grounds. Now, does everybody see what he just said? He doesn't say, I go to the Bible and I don't find it there. He said, I was led away from it because it just didn't feel right to me. It, 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 it literally repulsed me from a moral standpoint. Then he goes on. He says, it just doesn't make any sense. Now notice he's using his mind. He's thinking it through. And he says, it just doesn't make any sense to say that a God of love would torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. By the way, we'll come back and deal with that statement here in a minute. It's time for evangelicals to come out and say that the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment. Here's, a, here's another guy by the name of John Stott. He also died in 2011. He was a, uh, lived over in England. He was a, a, an Anglican cleric, very well known and very well respected in the evangelical movement. In fact, in 2005, Time magazine voted him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Now, here's why this is important. Listen to me. You've probably never heard of him. But these are the guys that are writing the textbooks for seminaries. These are the guys that are writing the commentaries. These are the guys that are training the next generation of preachers and the next generation of professors. That's a big deal. We, you may never heard of them. But trust me, the seminaries have heard of them. They know exactly who they are. That's why this is so important. This is what John Stott said. Emotionally, there it is. Emotionally, I find the concept of eternal hell intolerable. And I don't understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Scripture points in the direction of annihilation. So once again, he, he didn't feel right about it. Emotionally, he just couldn't handle it. So he went to Scripture and he found what he wanted to find. Now both... Clark Pinnock and John Stott, they came to believe in something called annihilation, okay? Not an eternal hell of eternal punishment, but something called annihilation. And most of you probably know what annihilation is. But basically what annihilation means is that you just cease to exist. So what they believe is that believers in Jesus, we all have eternal life, we go to heaven, we spend eternity with God, but unbelievers people separated from Christ, they are annihilated. They just go out of existence. They don't have any consciousness. They, ha they don't experience anything. Or, or to put it another way, they become as if they were never born. Everybody with me? It's called annihilation. By the way, if you think annihilation is a bad thing, let me ask you a question. Did you feel miserable during any of the thousands of years before you came into this world? Anybody? No, it's just, it's just nothing, right? You, there's no consciousness. You don't exist. That's what they believe annihilation. That's what they believe the Bible teaches is annihilation. But I want you to notice they got there 
not from Scripture. They got there because of their emotions. They got there because of how they felt about the doctrine of hell. Now, this is a big deal. The difference between teaching people that you're going to suffer forever in hell and that you're just going to go out of existence, that's a big deal. That's a huge, huge difference. Okay, now, here's the, here's the, the, the crux of the matter, right? That is, what does the Bible say? When it comes to the teaching about hell, what does the Bible say? Well, I'm going to read you some scriptures. I won't read all of them, but I'll read uh, uh, quite a few of them. I'll give you one from the Old Testament. Daniel 12, 2 says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting content. Now, there's not a lot in the Old Testament about hell. Just there wasn't a lot about it, not a real understanding of it, until this man came along. And he began to teach on hell more than any other man before him and more than any other man after him. Does anybody know who that is? Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody. Let me give you some of his. Mark chapter 9. He said this, It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 12, 2, Jesus said this, talking about Judas who betrayed him. He says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, by the way, that blows annihilation out of the water. Blows it out of the water. Because annihilation is, is the same as not being born. But he didn't say that, did he? He said there's something worse coming for Judas. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. It would be better for him that he had no consciousness. But he's not talking about annihilation. He's talking about hell. Luke chapter 16, again, the words of Jesus. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, another word for hell, being in torment. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Matthew 22. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, and that's just a few scriptures, by the way. There's more. This is not some isolated doctrine that you could somehow misinterpret. It is a, it is a carefully taught, very clear doctrine that is taught over and over and over again, largely by Jesus himself. In fact... Every one of those phrases describing hell was spoken by Jesus. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, their worms shall not die, outer darkness, unquenchable fire, eternal fire, the hell of fire, eternal punishment, anguish in the flame. Those are all the words of Jesus to describe hell. Now let me tell you, the point of those images is it should make you shudder. It should make you tremble. It should fill you with dread. In fact, it should make you recoil. But we don't turn around and erase it from the Bible. 
We don't turn around and twist it and deny the truth. What we do is we run to the Savior who can save us from hell. That's what we do. That's the point of it, is to, is to, is to point you to a Savior. One more, Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Torment forever and ever. Everlasting punishment. Let me tell you, that is a horrible truth. But it is the truth. I mean, it's just, it's the truth. Okay? Now, I want to deal with right now the biggest problem that people have with hell. And I'm going to do my very best to deal with it, but it's not easy. Okay? Here's the biggest problem that people have with hell, and Clark Pinnock, a while ago, said it. I'm going to quote him again. He said, It just does not make any sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. Okay, now I want to make sure you understand what he's saying. We all get a certain amount of time, a finite amount of time on this earth. If you're lucky, you get 80 or 90 years. Some people get 60, some 40, some maybe 20. And in those 80 years or 60 years or 40 or 20 years, you're committing sins left and right. And you never come to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And Clark Pinnock says, it just don't make any sense that in those 20 years, you piled up enough sins to be, to be tortured forever in hell. Or even in those 80 years, it just doesn't make any sense. That you piled up enough sins in that finite amount of time that, that a proportionate punishment is eternity. That's a really, really good question. Why does hell have to be forever? Why not a thousand years? Why not even 10,000 or 100,000? We could kind of get that, right? I mean, as long as we know there's some end to it. By the way, that's why Catholicism invented purgatory. They just, because it, that made sense to them. If you've got a certain amount of time, but you get out, this idea of an eternal hell that goes on and on and on made no sense. So they just invented purgatory, which is not in the Bible anywhere. It's a man-made doctrine. You can't understand this doctrine because it doesn't make any sense to man. Why does it have to be Forever. All right, I'm going to try to answer that question for you by telling you a story, okay? I, I'm, I'm not promising I'm going to be able to answer it perfectly, but I'm going to do the very best I can. Now, for those of you, I've been, I've been teaching now 15 or 16 years. I've used this story three or four times. Uh, if you've heard it before, it's redundant. I'm, I'm sorry, you're just going to... That's the only way I know to explain what I'm about to explain, all right? Johnny and the anthill. Now, remember the question that I'm trying to answer. Why does hell have to be forever? All right? Johnny and the anthill. So one Monday morning, you live in a neighborhood, and you walk outside of your house, and as you're walking out to your car to go to work, you look over, and your neighbor Johnny, you see him over there, and he's bending over an anthill. Okay? And you got a few minutes. You're, you're leaving a little bit early. So you thought, well, I'll go over and see what Johnny wants. So you walk over there and you, and you get over to Johnny. When you get over there, Johnny has stuck an ant, a, a stick down in that anthill. 
And the ants are just all over that stick. Man, they're biting it and gnawing on it and chewing on it and just doing their best to, to destroy it. Now, here's my question. Would you punish Johnny for that? Anybody? Of course you wouldn't, right? I mean, gee, I've done that. We stick a stick in an anthill and watch the ants go crazy. Nobody's going to punish the kid for that, right? So the answer is no. Everybody with me? Tuesday morning, same thing. You come out of the house. You go into work. You look over there. There's Johnny again. You're a little bit early, so you thought, well, I'll just go over and see what he's doing this time. When you get over there, this time he's got a grasshopper. And he's got that little grasshopper pinned down with a, maybe something, and, and the ants are just crawling all over that grasshopper, and they're just eating it and biting it and, and just killing it. I'm going to ask you the same question. Should Johnny be punished for that? Anybody? I mean, come on, man. It's a bug, <laughs> right? Every little boy in the world's thrown a bug on an ant bed. I mean, sure, you're, you know, the mom might say, Johnny, don't do that, or something like that. But come on, it's a bug, right? People do crickets and things like that. I mean, that's what little boys mostly do. So no, you're not going to any kind of real punishment for that. So Wednesday morning, you come out of the house. You look over, and this time you look, and you see Johnny, and something looks a little odd. And you just notice something's not right about what I'm looking at over there. And you get over there, and Johnny has a puppy. And he's got this puppy staked down over the ant bed. And the ants are just crawling all over that puppy. They're crawling in his ears. They're crawling in his nose. They're biting him in his eyes, going down his throat. I mean, the puppy's just crying. Should Johnny be punished for that? Yes. Oh, yeah, we got a weirdo on our hands, right? This kid's got some real problems. Now, I don't know what we do, right? Johnny's just a kid. I mean, I don't know. Do we, do we send him to counseling? Do we put him in reform school? I don't know, but we got to do something, Right? Some kind of punishment for this kid because he's got, anybody do that's got problems. All right, move on in our story. Thursday morning, you come out and you look over and immediately what you see is horrible. You see something that you never thought you would see. Johnny has got his little sister and he's got her stake down, holding her down over that ant bed. And the ants are just crawling all over. I mean, just biting her and she's screaming I'll ask the same question. Should he be punished? Let's throw this kid in jail right now, right? He's got, he's got major issues. Okay, here's the point. Why do we punish Johnny? He's doing the same thing every single day. He never changed. The same thing on Monday, you didn't punish him for. He did the same thing Tuesday and you didn't punish him. You only decided to punish him on Wednesday and 30, Thursday, but his actions have not changed at all, right? Someone steals. They may steal an apple. They steal a, a Rembrandt, but stealing is stealing. Somebody may kill. They may, they may kill a bug or they may kill a, a human, but killing is killing. He's done the same thing every day. What has changed is the object of his actions. Are you with me? On day one, it was a stick. Day two, he went to a bug. Day three, now it's an animal. Day four, now it's a human being. That's what changed. The more value that we put on an object of his actions, and let's just change that word to sin. The more value you put on the object of his sin, the greater the punishment, yes? He's doing the same thing, but he's doing it to something more valuable than the day before. Everybody with me so far? 
See, you kill a grasshopper, we don't do anything. You kill a, a puppy, maybe we give you a year in jail. You kill a human being, we'll give you the death penalty, or we'll give you... But killing's killing. What's changed is the object of your sin, the object of your actions. Friday morning, you walk out of your house, and you look over there in the yard, and this time, the object of Johnny's sin is Jesus Christ. He's got Jesus Christ on the ant bed. Now you tell me, now he's gone from a stick to a bug to a baby to a human. I'm sorry, from an animal to a human. And now the value of the object on that ant bed is infinite. It's eternal. He has now sinned. He has now hurt the most valuable being that exists in the universe. That being, by the way, is infinitely more valuable, not only than one human being... He is infinitely more valuable than every human being on this planet. Now, this is what Clark Pinnock and John Stott miss. See, they think you're on this planet for 60 years or 80 years and you sin against your friend and you sin against your neighbor and you sin against your spouse and you even sin against yourself. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, first and foremost, when you sin, you sin against God. Psalm 51.4, the King David wrote this, by the way, after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He wrote this after he's had her husband Uriah murdered. And he writes it after he's been called out by Nathan the prophet. And he says what? Against you, God. I sinned against you first. You foremost. You only. See, every sin is a sin against God. So every minute of every day of your lifetime that you're sinning, you're sinning against the most valuable object, the most valuable being, the most valuable thing. It's infinitely valuable. And if Johnny's punishment is relative to the value of the object, will you tell me, what should his punishment be? He gets life in prison for a human being. What do you get for sin against God? See, folks, the Bible says the Bible assumes that an eternity is a just and righteous punishment for sinning against a just and righteous God. The Bible just assumes that. In fact, let me look at it a different way. If I came to you and said, hey, I know a man that got 10 years in jail for stealing. Would you assume he stole an apple or a Rembrandt? You'd assume he stole a Rembrandt, right? Or what if I said to you a man got a life, he got a life in prison for a killing? Would you assume he killed a dog or he killed a person? You see, the length of the punishment is an indicator of the value of the object. The length of the punishment is a value, is an indicator or a, a, a shadow, if you will, a pointer to the value of the object. Now think about that. If an eternity of punishment is an indicator of the value of God, then what kind of God is this we serve? Think about that. A God that is infinitely beautiful, that is infinitely pure, that is infinitely glorious, that is infinitely holy. And the Bible just says you sin against Him, it's an eternity. See, the whole thing, hell is an indicator, a shadow of the glory of God. We, we don't 
we, it's hard for us to imagine how glorious it is. Then look at the punishment for sin. That's a shadow, an indicator of how incredible this God is. I am 100% convinced that when we see Him, we will say, Oh, oh, of course, of course in eternity it isn't enough to sin against somebody like this. It's, we can't see it now. But we have to look at hell a different way. Part 5. I want to urge you tonight, don't be like the world. Don't be like the world. Don't, don't come over here and say, you know what, this hell thing, man, it's just bothering me. I just can't figure it out. I just can't understand why it would be like that. I'm, I'm, and then you come back to the Bible. And you just come in here and you twist these scriptures. You twist them to mean something that they don't mean. Or you just ignore them. That's not what we do, folks. What do we do? This, we come to the book. And if the book says it's right, it's right. If the book says it's right, it's right. Listen, we got to be very careful. You start cutting off and, or, or de-anchoring yourself from this book, whether it's about uh, gay marriage or whether it's about hell or whether it's about any other thing, when you cut yourself off from this book, you go to drift. You go to a drift. And now you are, you are open to any lie that the enemy or anybody can ever tell you. See, we can't be that. Don't let your mind and emotions ever overcome the truth. You... This is the truth. You stay focused on this. You stay anchored to this. If this says it, I don't care if you don't understand it. Believe it. Believe it. I got a quote I was sharing with Pastor Henry last night. Today belongs to the soundbite. Tomorrow belongs to marketing. Eternity belongs to the truth. Listen, we are a people of the truth. We don't go with the latest soundbite. We don't fall for the world's marketing we believe this book. We are an eternal people. Part six, and this is my last thing. I want to make sure that we understand tonight that the doctrine of hell is insufficient to save. Okay? Now, let me tell you, the fear of hell is a good thing. It's a useful thing. The, Jesus, again, he talks about it more than anybody. So the fact that he warns us about it, the fact that he tells us about it, means it's a good thing to, to know about. It's a good thing to have that knowledge. For example, Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I warn you who to fear. Fear him. He's talking about God. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. He said that that's... So, so he's using... Hell as a learning tool for us to understand the severity of God. But I want you to know it's, it can't save anybody. Hell cannot scare, I'm sorry, yeah, hell cannot scare anyone into heaven because heaven is a place for people who love God. Let me say that again and make sure you get that. Hell can't scare anyone to heaven because heaven is, a, is reserved for people who love God. And fear of hell can't make you love God. James 2.5 says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And he's talking about the kingdom, which he has promised to those who what? Love him. 
Everybody in heaven will be people who love Jesus, not people who are just scared of hell. You don't get into heaven without loving him. See, fear may show you that you're on the wrong path. Fear might even point you to the right path. But a fear of hell has absolutely no power at all to produce true repentance in a sinner. None. It just has no power to do that. You see, it's possible to be sorry for your sin, not because you love God, but just because you're scared of the punishment. How many criminals have, have, have sat in the dock and, and been pronounced guilty and they shed tears? Not because they're, 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 you know, they're sad of the kind of person they are. Not because they're even really sorry for what they've done. They're, they're sorry that they got caught. They're sorry for the pain that's about to come. They're sorry for the punishment that's about to come. Folks, that's not, that's not true repentance. That's not a sign of hating wrong. That's just a sign of hating the consequences of your sin. That's not true repentance. True repentance comes out of a love for God. True repentance comes because we realize our sin is an impediment to knowing Him. Let me give you an example and back that up. Everybody knows this story in Luke chapter 5. Uh, Peter's been out fishing all night in his boat. And uh, he comes in and Jesus is there. And Jesus said, hey man, can I get in your boat and, and push offshore a little bit and teach the people? And Peter's like, yeah, sure. So, so Jesus gets in the boat and they push off a little bit and he's, he's teaching. And when he's done, he says to Peter, hey, let down your net. And Peter said, man, we've been fishing all night. We ain't caught nothing. He's probably like, I just want, I'm just ready to go home, you know. But he says, okay, at your word, I'll do it. And he lets down his net, and they catch so many fish that they have to call their boats, their, their neighbors and other people's boats to come help them bring the fish in. And when that happens in Luke 5, 8, something incredible happens. It says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, here's the thing. See, it wasn't a fear of hell that made Peter see a sin. It wasn't a, 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 a rebuke by Jesus. It wasn't a, a, the, the fear of judgment or anything like that. It was a miracle of grace. That's what made him see how sinful he was. You see, in that moment, he saw the value of God. He saw what a treasure Jesus was, and he saw how out of sync his own life was with that man. And he fell at that man's feet and he said, have mercy on me. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. See, it's the goodness of God that creates true repentance. The doctrine of hell is true. In fact, it's horribly true. And we should recognize it. We should preach it. We should teach it. But we need to understand the power of salvation doesn't lie in threats. It doesn't lie in fear. In fact, it doesn't lie in the bad news. Now, by the way, we need to tell the bad news so that they know what the good news is. You don't know you need a doctor until you know you're sick. So we are to preach and teach and, 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 and recognize the doctrine of hell. But the power of salvation doesn't lie in fear. It doesn't even lie in the bad news. It lies in the good news. That's what Paul said in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of what? The good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know tonight that we've talked about a tough subject, and I've 
I've done my best, but I don't, I don't know if I can even come close to explaining how glorious you must be, how valuable you must be, what a treasure you must be. Holy Spirit, in some way that goes beyond my words, my pitiful English words, will you somehow tonight just give us a glimpse in our heart of who you really are? Let us see hell not as this this, this terrible thing, even though it is, but let us see it as a shadow, as a pointer, as an indicator of how wonderful and glorious and holy and pure and beautiful that you are. That, that's something only you can do, Holy Spirit. I don't want to wait till heaven to say, oh, I want to say it. I want to say it now. I want to see it now. I want to know who you are now, as much as this mind and body and, and, and humanness that I'm in can. We love you, Lord. We thank you. I thank you that I'm not going to have to be afraid of hell. Because I have a kingdom. I have an inheritance set aside, guaranteed for me right now. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this building has that same knowledge. That they don't have to be afraid of hell. That they know, that they know, that they know, that they know. And I'm going to, right now, if you'll just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. If there's someone here tonight, and if I've, as I've told about hell, there's a fear inside of you. You don't feel freedom. You, you don't feel peace. You feel a fear that, because you don't know that you know that you know that that's not in your future. You don't have to walk out of here like that. You can know that you've been saved. You can know that there's a kingdom in heaven waiting for you. You can know that there's an inheritance guaranteed for you. Is there anybody here tonight that would just say, you know, pray for me? I won't call you up or anything like that. But if there's just somebody here, you're dealing with a fear of hell because you're uncertain of your salvation. Okay, anybody else? Anybody at all? Anybody? Father, thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your truth. I just say it over and over again. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your truth. That I don't have to... You, you gave it to us. There it is, right there. We just have to accept it. And we just have to believe it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. You are so good. You are so good. God, can I say thank you for your kindness here? I know we've talked about your severity, but I'd much rather talk about your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your love and your glory. God, you are so wonderful. So wonderful. I sit, on, I sit there and I watch the news and I see all the banality out there and just the stuff, that just the junk. And we are so blessed to know you. We are so blessed to have purpose in this life, to have truth in this life, to know beauty in this life. God, thank you. Thank you. I am so thankful for that. We as a church, you have, you have guarded this church. You have kept this church. You have not let this church go the way of so many other churches in America where they've abandoned the doctrines of the Bible. This is a church of the truth. 
And God, I, that, that's, that's you. That is all you. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.